This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. The topic of leadership is one that is discussed constantly in companies across the world and, of course, on this channel as well. But what makes a successful leader and impact on both the company and yourself are questions that are constantly being asked. We see all kinds of perks in the office, but what may be one of the most important things that employees and leaders are looking for right now is being able to make a difference. The money and benefits are nice, but if you have, if you know that you are making a difference within the company, but also outside of their walls and having an impact on society, then maybe you are reaching some version of nirvana. A new book takes a look at this goal. It is called The Meaning Revolution, The Power of Transcendent Leadership. The author of the book is Fred Kaufman, who is an advisor in leadership development at Google. He's also a former vice president of executive development at LinkedIn. Fred, great to have you with us today. A pleasure to be with you, Dan. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you. Uh, so, I mean, this sounds like this has really been, to a degree, a, 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 a life's work for you in terms of understanding what really is the driver for leadership and what really is the driver for success in leadership in companies. Exactly. I, I came from a very technical background. I studied uh, economics, uh, economic theory. I have a doctorate from Berkeley and then taught management accounting and control systems at MIT. And uh, throughout the early part of my life, I made this assumption that uh, material exchanges were the essence of the business world and that uh, in order to motivate people, you had to incentivize them with rewards and control them and threaten them with punishments or taking away their rewards if they didn't do what you expected them to do. And that was so... um, it was so prevalent as a, as a paradigm. I'd say it wasn't something I looked at. It was something through which I looked at the world. So everything I saw, you know, with, with rose, with maybe gray-colored glasses, right, right. That, that made uh, material exchanges the, the essence of the problem. And then uh, throughout my life, as I started working with real companies, not theoretical uh, entities and real people, Rather than the uh, homo economicus that is modeled in the in, in the literature, in the technical literature, I realized that both for them and for me, also by introspection, that yeah, up to a certain point, of course, without the necessities of life, uh, one is miserable. But uh, and, and this doesn't take that much. I mean, it is it is a very important uh, basic level of needs to be satisfied. But once you cross that line. Uh, as we economists say, the marginal utility decreases at an increasing rate, meaning uh, things, material things become progressively less and less important relative to other concerns that we have as human beings. Is part of this a little bit generational in terms of the fact that, that and we've talked about it a lot, is the fact that millennials and Gen Z uh, really are being impacted differently by things that uh, the baby boomer generation were impacted by? Absolutely. I think um, there's a, an evolution in a person's life. Uh, from the time when you, let's say, start your career and you're worried about your future and you have to acquire, I would say, the platform for expressing your, you know, whatever your dreams, right. um, to the point when you, in a sense, grow up professionally and you achieve a certain level of success and then you aspire to other things. The same process, I think, is happening with generations where 
the baby boomers, uh, upon, um, among which I count myself, who were born already in a certain level of wealth, different than the people that lived through the Great Depression and the two great wars. I, I, I was born in 1960, so I did not go through any of that, but my parents did, and I could tell the difference. Of course, for them, uh, I am a millennial, meaning I, I was uh, like a... Uh, not not so disciplined, and I I didn't know and the story. So when I was a young kid, that I had to go to school and blah blah blah. So for the, I think there's an intergenerational conversation right. where always the the young people are the ones that don't really know how good they have them, yeah. and that's how we think about the millennials. But the other side of that story is that by having it that good then uh, they have a platform from which to aspire to even more good, and a good that at some point transcends material goods. So how do you think this mindset or this change that's kind of evolving right now, how do you think that that is is being viewed by companies, and how do you think it is impacting them as well? Oh, with a lot of fear, <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> um, the, I mean, there's always a war for talent. There's always a, yeah. a competitive market to um, attract, retain, and develop the best people. Uh, And right now, we're getting to the end of a particular, I would say, curve of attractiveness, which is the curve of money, the curve of benefits, salary, uh, stock options, you name it, all these material rewards that are extremely important, but they have gotten to the point where you can't differentiate yourself based on that, because everybody offers that, and particularly in Silicon Valley, I mean, the companies have a lot of money to attract people. The, the, the salaries are, are, are always at, at the top of the scale, mm-hmm. and it's very difficult to argue, well, you know, come to Google uh, rather than Facebook because we'll pay you more. I mean, Facebook pays as well or better than Google in some other areas, or LinkedIn will do that too, and it's, it's impossible to dis- differentiate yourself and to maintain the attractiveness if you only base base it on material goods. So people are scared because there's a difference between what I call material and moral goods. A moral good is yeah. creating a sense of community, a purpose that is meaningful, um, ethical principles that will make people proud to participate, and so on. The, the difference is that um, material goods you can give without involving yourself in them. So if I, if I, let's say, buy an orange from you, when I give you the money, that's it. It's, it's the money, and I don't have to put my heart and soul in it, and you give me the orange, and that's it. We both, we both had a good exchange, and that's fair. But if we say we're going to work together, and it's not just about money, now if you want to inspire me to work with you and to participate in the project that you want to realize in the world, now you cannot extricate yourself from the proposition, who you right. are, the level of trust you inspire in me, or the, the, the level of uh, excitement that you're able to light up uh, by proposing a vision of what this might be, it's essential to the transaction. And you know, as the Beatles say, you can buy diamond rings, but you cannot buy love. And at this point, to compete and succeed, you need people to care. You need you need something that's much more like love than a diamond ring, which might be you know in the in the times of the assembly line, well, just go there and uh, do your do your stations work, and we don't care if you if you like it, if you don't like it, if you're happy, just just do this. And there are time and motion studies that say exactly what you're supposed to do, and that's all we need. We're talking with uh, Fred Kaufman, uh, who is. Uh, 
the author of the book, The Meaning Revolution, The Power of Transcendent Leadership. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. I mean, when you think about it, Fred, I mean, that's a... Some of this is is kind of a significant shift from, you know, I'm kind of in that baby boomer generation as well in my early 50s. And the fact that, you know, what I used to see even when I was in my 20s in terms of mindset around a company is is much different then from what we see now. So I guess the question is, how how do you think companies are reacting to this shift? And how do you think this is going to change companies moving forward? Well, so far, very poorly. Um, uh, uh, the companies are just, uh, like, like you say, in the military uh, world, they're fighting the last war. Yeah. So people people are trying to attract the new generation with the same technologies that attracted the, the past generation. And you see this by looking at the abysmal levels of engagement. Uh, the surveys will tell you in the U.S., which is probably one of the highest in the world, is 30%. Yeah. So 70% of the people either don't care or actively hate their jobs. Yeah. The people they work for and the people they work with and the places where they work and the customers they are supposed to serve. Now, how, how are you going to get excellence from people who don't care or hate what they do. Now, the, the question now is, how do you make them care? And in the past, uh, before the, what's now called the knowledge economy, you m- might have been able to tell people what to do. But today, in any, in any serious uh, you know, position in the company beyond entry level, it's almost impossible to know what is the right way to proceed in the face of unforeseen cir- circumstances. Uh, you have these terrible disasters that you hear over and over again that, you know, somebody like the, the, the people in United are told, you know, get this person off the plane. Yeah. And then suddenly you have this video going viral and everybody hates United and they have they lost, you know, whatever, hundreds of millions of dollars in market cap just because uh, their brand went to hell. Wells, Far- or- Wells Fargo, the same, the same type of thing with, with all the issues that they had with, with banking. And obviously they, exactly. they just had a settlement for $480 million that they had to pay out. Exactly. So you, you think, well, how, how do we should control people more? But it doesn't work. You can't control everything and you can't tell people what to do because you don't even know what to do. Essentially, you need people to be intelligent and use their judgment and discretion to to either decide or check with other people and to want to do well i remember when when, when i when i had kids and using you know to the, the the last curve i tried to teach them how to read the same way my my parents taught me so i realized if i want them to read i need to give them incentives and the incentive was until you finish reading you can't use your devices and yeah they got i got them to read but then as they were reading and muttering under their breath how much they hated me, uh, I realized <laughs> I, don't want, I don't want them to read. I want them to want to read. And that's a completely different problem. Because yeah. I can't threaten them, you know, unless you want to read, I'm going to take away your devices. That doesn't work. So how do I get them to want to read rather than to just do something? And companies are in the same predicament because we, we as leaders or, or the people who are running these companies want people to want to do well, to want to pursue the mission, to want to operate according to the values, to want to connect with other people in a cooperative, meaningful way. But 
we can't pay for that. You cannot buy that kind of love. You have to elicit it. You have to deserve it. You have to earn the moral authority so that people want to do it because they believe in the mission, they believe in the values, they believe in you, and they believe in the people that are doing the work with them. Do you think that's an easier process today in terms of getting that buy-in, you know, to be able oh, no. to— it, no, no, yeah. no. I think I think it's I think it's as hard as I mean it's always been terribly hard. Right, exactly. That's why yeah. people, but that's why people talk about leadership because it's the ultimate competitive advantage. Right. I mean I, I I'm not I'm not trying to be overly philosophical. There's the the problem of leadership is that it it requires an inner development. You yeah. can't just be a leader because you read a lot of books. But the, there's an external expression of leadership, which is you get the job done, you get to win, yeah. you get to accomplish the mission. But for that, you need the best people giving their best effort. And most, most companies don't get that because most leaders are not able to inspire that kind of commitment. So who, if you are able to, as I, I mean, I say, I say to some of the people I work with, if you only suck a little bit less, <laughs> you, you are, you know, you're, you're going to be great because, uh, you know, in the land of the blind, the one eye is king. And, and, and we are living in the land of the blind where people don't have any idea that this dimension even exists. So they still think, you know, we, we, it's about uh, pay a little more and we tweak the incentives and we pay people yeah. for this or that and we make the KPIs really important. And one of the things I try to prove in the book, really almost mathematically, although I don't use math, it's pure logic, is that if you want people to be accountable, you need to give them KPIs or key performance indicators that will be local, meaning you have to look at their work and their results. But if you want people to cooperate, that doesn't work because then that creates silos. Everybody's worried about their own results, right. and they don't cooperate with others. And there's an unfortunate result from systems optimization that says that if you want to optimize the system, you have to sub-optimize the subsystems. So if you want people to cooperate, you need to allow them to not do the best for their subsystem and contribute excuse me, to the mission of the larger system. Now, you can only do that by giving them global performance indicators, not local. Right. But if you give them global performance indicators that will engender cooperation, then you lose accountability. And if you have free riders or people <laughs> who don't pull their weight or they're taking advantage or they're just not talented enough to, to be part of the team, you will never know who they are because everybody argues they're helping everybody else yeah. and then nobody's accountable for anything. So there's absolutely no way. I, this is the problem that I, I actually I wrote my dissertation on. Yeah. And I, I was, I was uh, trying to solve, uh, I would say, very naively. Uh, now I realize that it cannot be solved because there's an inherent contradiction between these two metrics. Uh, the only way to solve it is by changing the paradigm, by changing one of the parameters of this problem so that you don't assume that people are trying to get away with not working. Yeah. And that requires people are inspired to do the best. We're talking with uh, Fred Kaufman, who is the author of the book, The Meaning Revolution. He is also uh, an advisor in leadership development at Google. The way for you to join in with your comments or questions, 844-WHARTON, is it, if it's by phone, 844-942-7866, or on Twitter, at BizRadio111, B-I-Z Radio 111, or my Twitter account, which is at Dan Loney, L-O-N-E-Y 21. We go to Oakton, Virginia. Mike is on the line. Mike, go ahead, sir. Oh, hi, Fred. Uh, thank you so much for um, hi, all Mike. of your research and all of your uh, knowledge. Um, absolutely fascinating. 
Um, my question is, um, when you refer to leadership, um, are you specifically referring to the leadership of the C-suite or managers or both? Oh, wonderful question. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mike. I, I, it's, a, it's a very, very important distinction. So let me define leadership, which I wish I had done earlier. But my definition of leadership is uh, eliciting internal commitment in order to pursue a mission. So that has nothing to do with formal authority. I'm not saying this is true. This is just my interpretation of leadership, and it's the idea I'd like to propose, that a leader is the person that achieves this moral authority and deserves the commitment of other people to pursue a particular mission. So that can be at home. As I said with my kids, I could be a manager or a boss and uh, tell them, you don't read, I'll take your devices. Or I can be a leader and inspire them to read. Um, at work, I can be even a colleague and inspire people to you know, try a new idea. Uh, those are gestures of leadership. So for me, leading is the verb. Leader, leader is not a noun or a, an adjective. It's uh, just a, a designation for the person that leads uh, or who leads. And this person is able to inspire others to give their best to achieve a mission. Mike, thanks very much for the call. 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. So to a degree, and I'll put it in a vernacular that I've used in the past in the, in the frame of sports, you've got coaches, you've got managers of teams, but in many cases, sometimes the leaders are the ones that are within that that locker room or that clubhouse who are be, being able to kind of bring forth the best effort from the people around them. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, when we speak about uh, sports or we refer to, to sports teams, we have no problem in talking about the team spirit. Right, uh, right. But, and we know that that makes a huge difference. We, many times we'll say, you know, this epic – uh, underdog uh, upsets that, that they, they they're able to achieve, you know, impo- apparently impossible results, and we say, oh yeah, but they had they had spirit, the, the team spirit. They were really committed. That they were they were driven. Yeah, and we don't want to use the same expression for business. Why not? I mean, spirit understood as the animating force, that which propels people forward. It's a wonderful energy to enlist in the achievement of your mission. That, I think people are re, uh, worried about uh, inclusiveness and religious um, exclusion, exclusion or getting into areas that yeah. affect people's privacy. But the notion of spiritual energy as the will to, to go beyond yourself, to, to, to commit to something that's bigger than yourself, is totally inclusive, it's universal, and we all feel it. Everybody can relate to that, regardless of any of the distinctions that may, may seem separate us. We are talking with Fred Kaufman, who is an advisor in leadership development at Google. He is also the author of the book, The Meaning Revolution, The Power of Transcendent Leadership, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. How often do you think, though, then, I mean, there are people that, you know, that are in the office that feel like they have to do everything. They have to be the the kind of the superhero, the you know, the, the be-all, end-all. How much of an impact do those people have on the potential for leadership within the office? Well, um, I'd say it's a, 
it's a double-edged sword because uh, if you are demonstrating your commitment by being fully dedicated to the mission, then that will inspire other people too. But if you are taking over and you are covering up for other people uh, not participating in the same way and you're not holding other people accountable, then you're actually destructive. And this is one of the paradoxes of the hard workers, which is that they enable the, uh, the other not hard workers to remain hidden and to not be challenged. So I think the, the commitment to a mission and a set of principles is not just expressed with your exemplification. That's necessary, but not sufficient. Perhaps more difficult for the people who are working in a team environment is to hold each other accountable. Yeah. That's what really makes the difference in extraordinary teams, not just that, that they are they get along, which yeah, that, that's optional in my mind. You, you, you don't need to be friends, but you need to have this shared set of goals and standards, and you need to hold each other accountable so that nobody can belong to the team unless they really fulfill the, um, the needs of everybody in the team. And uh, when people don't do that, bad things happen. But it, it becomes that much more important because of how the mindset of companies is this these days, that they want people to work in their in teams these days. They don't necessarily want one person out on an island to complete a project. They want the mindset coming from as many people as possible. Absolutely. I mean, they, they want people to work in teams, and they want the teams to work as a team, too. So it's kind of, uh, in the, the yeah. words of General Stanley McChrystal, the, the team of teams. Because the, uh, the idea of, of a team integrates different people in the pursuit of a common goal, but then different teams or even different functions yeah. in the pursuit of an organizational goal. And that is shockingly difficult. It, it is incredibly difficult to avoid the silos and the interdepartmental conflicts that sure. plague organizations. So uh, it it does require a, a, a revolution. That's why I call the name. That's why I call the book like that. Yeah. There has to be a revolution where you solve the problem through different means, not just by trying to compensate people for collaborating, because that doesn't do it. Fred, thanks very much for coming on the show. We wish you all the best with the book. It's a fantastic piece of work. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Dan. Thank you. Thank you. The book is The Meaning Revolution, The Power of Transcendent Leadership by Fred Kaufman, advisor in leadership development at Google. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.